Thank you very much, Thomas, uh, for uh, reading that passage so well uh, and covering such great volume of passage very clearly and, and quickly. So thank you. Uh, before we look further at this, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this passage of Scripture is in many ways uh, dark and perplexing, uh, and yet we know that all of Scripture is there for our benefit. Therefore, please, this morning, uh, speak to us through it and help us to see your good purposes for us, your people, today. Amen. Well, how did you feel as Thomas read those three chapters to you? It's dark stuff, isn't it? Vile in many ways. The violence, the horror, the darkness, uh, kidnapping, murder, bloodshed on a horrendous scale. And this isn't legend, this is history. This actually happened. How did you feel? It's not a sense of disbelief and revulsion. And yet, when we look around ourselves at our world today, our world in many areas is not that dissimilar. We look into Syria and into Iraq and what ISIS is doing there. That is a society which is dark and is being ripped apart with the most violent evil. And we see that in Nigeria as well with Boko Haram. It is dark. What on earth is the point of these chapters of Scripture? What do they teach us? The first thing we need to note is this, and it has a very important function, because these chapters are bringing home to us a very important truth. It is this, the darkness of a society that rejects God's good rule. The darkness of a society that rejects God's good rule. You see, in this um, section of Scripture, it's the second part of uh, the concluding section, the whole of the book of Judges. It started back at chapter 17 last week. And we're given this repeated assessment of the state of the nation of Israel. Uh, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Of course, this is not a political statement that Israel has no king. It's a theological one, and it's a diagnosis that points to the heart of the problem. Because when it says that Israel had no king, it means, of course, a human king. For as Gideon had acknowledged, if you remember, when the people tried to make him king, actually God is their king. At chapter 8, verse 23, Gideon says to the people, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. God was the nation's king. And of course, what had he done at Mount Sinai? If you like, he had codified his authority into a law. And he'd given that through Moses. And so God's people now had the law of the king. Remember then, fast forward to when the people are about to enter the promised land under Joshua. And what do they resolve? What do they say to Joshua? We will love and serve and obey the Lord. We will do it. And yet what happened? Well, it's the message of judges, isn't it? As one generation passes to the next, the nation progressively turns its back on their good king, the Lord, and on his law. They become progressively more pagan as each new generation comes to pass. God's law should have been the common reference point which shaped the life of the whole of the nation. And yet... 
what happened? It gained little traction. It failed increasingly to shape their life together. Instead, and very tragically, each person decided for themselves what was right and proper. They ignored this overarching authority reference point of the law. You see, rather than God's rule, it was self-rule. Self-rule. And what happened? Well, spiritual anarchy ensued. We saw that last week when Andrew explained that passage to us. And also moral anarchy ensued. So last week, if you like, we had what you could say self-determined religion. Uh, The Levite, who was commissioned to be a priest over a set of idols, firstly for Micah, and then eventually for the whole tribe of Dan. As we read that last week and we saw that, we thought, how on earth can you have a Levite, who's supposed to be serving in the tabernacle, actually officiating with idols? It had all gone horribly wrong. It was self-determined religion. And now, in the second part of this concluding section of the book of Judges, we see the outworking of that spiritual decay, self-determined morality. Without the good guiding hand of God's law, we see a dark society. We see a society tearing itself apart. And that, indeed, is on an escalating scale, which eventually leads to this catastrophic civil war. So let's firstly uh, dig down a little more and just feel, if you like, the darkness of a society rejecting God's rule. Well, the rejection of God's authority, it's evident in various ways and at various levels throughout the whole of these chapters we looked at. Uh, Chapter 19 itself opens on an ominous note. A Levite with a concubine. How does that work out? How do they come together? Uh, A bit of crumpet on the side to satisfy his sexual lusts. This is a Levite who should have been officiating in the tabernacle and then in the temple eventually. What has happened to God's creation ideal of one man and one woman uh, being sexually faithful to each other in a lifelong covenant relationship? It's all there back in Genesis. But it seems to have all been but forgotten. Uh, When the concubine is unfaithful to the Levite, uh, she runs away, she goes home to her folks, and eventually the Levite thinks, hey, I want her back. And so off he goes to bring her back to Bethlehem. Uh, Having collected her, uh, and on their return journey, uh, he shuns staying overnight in the nearby pagan towns out of fear for his personal safety. And instead, he decides to press on to reach an Israelite town called Gilbeah. However, a shocking reception awaits them. Uh, The extent of the moral decay is not limited to the Levite and his own personal moral standards alone. The moral decay is at societal level as well, and it's consumed this whole town. Uh, Firstly, uh, no one shows them hospitality. Uh, God's law to love your neighbor was not on many fridge magnets in that town. These people are just left in the square until a man who wasn't a local, an Ephraimite, takes them in. Uh, Next, some of the men of the town approach the Ephraimite's house and shockingly, they demand to have homosexual sex with a Levite. Well, uh, if this sounds somewhat familiar, then it is familiar because the narrator is using exactly the same terms 
that the Bible uses earlier to describe the situation in Sodom. And what he's saying is, this town is a Sodom within Israel. How utterly depraved. And not only is the society sexually corrupt, uh, there is a disregard for the sanctity of human life. This Levite, he's a wretch. Rather than doing the noble thing and protecting his concubine, he's prepared to sacrifice her to the mob to save his own skin. And whilst he sleeps incredibly, she endures a night of brutal terror at the hands of the mob. And next morning as he leaves, he discovers his concubine on the door, steps to the house. Uh, we're assumed by this point she's dead. If she's not, then she succumbs to her injuries shortly after, we would assume. Uh, he takes her home, uh, chops up her, 12, her body into 12 pieces, and sends the bits as a gruesome telegram to each of the tribes in Israel. Uh, it does indeed lead to widespread outrage. And people from all over Israel gather for this huge congress, this big meeting. And they decide to punish the men of Gibeah for their crime. What do they do? Uh, they speak to the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, saying, look, hand these men over. They've got to be punished. And yet, incredibly, the Benjamites refuse. They actually, in some way, condone the evil acts. What they're actually doing is saying that their solidarity with their blood relatives is more important and is stronger than their commitment to justice. They won't hand them over. And so, a violent civil war ensues. And as you read through chapter 20, the casualties are on an enormous scale. Maybe over 100,000 people are killed. Uh, when the 11 tribes of Israel eventually do get the upper hand over Benjamin in the military campaign, their response thereafter is totally disproportionate to the crime. Uh, no doubt they were enraged by the, the previous heavy casualties they'd inflicted. And now they are no longer driven by justice, but by revenge. Uh, God's law stated, an eye for an eye. It was there to limit retribution. And yet, here again, God's law is conveniently forgotten. It didn't shape the response of the 11 tribes of Israel when it came to the tribe of Benjamin. And in the end, nearly the whole tribe of Benjamin is wiped out, including women and children. And only 600 men survive. It's a terrible story. Do you see what's happening? One murder has led to a bloody civil war. One murder has led to the virtual annihilation of a whole tribe. That's not over yet. In chapter 21, uh, the 11 Israelite tribes then regret what they've done. So they call another meeting. You see, they see the, the 12 tribe structure of Israel as fundamental to what they are as a nation. And they want to preserve it now at all costs. And so they're now ready to let bygones be bygones with the 600 remaining Benjamites. But the problem is, of course, only 600 Benjamite men are left. 
All the women of Benjamin were murdered and the Israelites had taken an oath not to give their daughters in marriage to any of the Benjamites. So what do they do? Well, they could have gone to the Lord and said, hey, we've made a big mistake in our oath. Please, can we be relieved from it? But no, they don't do that. They resort to the most scurrilous schemes to resolve their dilemma. To preserve their oath, but resorting to such underhand and dark methods. What do they do? Well, uh, to get wise for the Benjamites, they first attack a town that didn't join in the civil war, the town of Jabesh-Gilead. Logic seems to be that if they weren't with us, then they are against us. And they murder everyone except the virgin women. And they force those women to then marry the Benjamites. So, uh, 400 women from Jabesh Gilead, uh, 600 men of Benjamin, the basic maths still leaves, 200 more wives needed. So what do they do? Uh, the Israelites give permission to the Benjamites. You can go down to Shiloh, and when the girls come out, you can abduct them and take whichever you want for your wives. And that's very convenient, isn't it? Then, uh, the Israelites in Shiloh can't be said to have broken their oath. They haven't given their daughters in marriage to the Bendamites. They've been taken against their will. And the dilemma is supposedly wonderfully resolved. One rape has become 600 rapes. One murder has become thousands of murders. It's dark. It's a society which is unravelling. It's a society which has rejected the authority of its king, the Lord God. It's a society that has lost sight of the good law of God. So, it's dark. We then need to ask the question, of course, which I'm sure is looming in all of your minds. What is the benefit of looking at such a dark and depressing chapter of Israel's history? When we fast forward to the New Testament, God's word assures us that all of it, including Judges 19 to 21, is written for a positive purpose. Uh, Look, for example, at Romans 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. In some way, Judges, chapters 19 to 21, is supposed to encourage us to have endurance and encouragement so that we might have hope. In some way, these dark chapters are encouraging us to remain faithful to the gospel in the present, to have endurance, which in turn invigorates our hope in the future, ultimately the new creation. How does it work? How does it do that? I think the heart of it is this. I think these chapters in Judges help us appreciate afresh, and maybe in a deeper way which we hadn't quite seen before, the amazing work that Christ has done, and also the amazing work that Christ will do in the new creation. You see, Judges bring home to us the darkness of life in rejection of God's rule. But the work of Christ then burns all the brighter and the more radiant. Because what does he do? 
The work of Christ is to restore God's rule and to restore God's kingdom. And that carries wonderful implications for our lives in the present and also for our hope for the future. Firstly, let's think about how it may give us a fresh appreciation of the work that Christ has done, principally, of course, in his, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because it does help us to have a firmer grasp on the gospel to give us endurance. What do we see as the Old Testament progresses? Well, uh, from the era of King David onwards, God's redemptive promises start to speak, of course, of a king. There was a promise of a future Messiah, a king whose rule will be glorious. And we know, of course, Jesus is that king. And Judges helps us to view his work through fresh eyes. The lesson of Judges is both positive and negative. Positively, Judges tells us God's authority is good. He is the perfect king. His authority is good. It's good to live under that authority. And we reject that authority at our peril. That's the positive lesson of Judges. And negatively, Judges reminds us that in our own strength, we just cannot live under God's rule. We can't do it in our own strength. Uh, the subsequent history of Israel is proof of that. Uh, after the period of the Judges, things continue to go downward. Even under the good human kings like David and Josiah, the people still can't obey God's law and live under his rule. And eventually, of course, they forfeit the land in exile under God's judgment. We all, like sheep, will go astray if we seek and depend on our own strength. You see, in our own strength, we would fare no better than those Israelites when it comes to obeying God's law. And yet, with the coming of the perfect King Jesus, he brings the perfect solution to our dilemma. He brings wayward, helpless sheep back under God's good rule. Just think about it. The work of Christ. It's amazing what it achieves. Firstly, his death on the cross pays for all our failures to submit to God's good rule. The death of Christ on the cross opens the door for all who put their trust in him back into God's kingdom so we can then live again under God's rule. And then the work of Christ isn't finished there because then he greets, grants each pardoned believer the power to then joyfully and obediently live under God's rule. You see, in our own strength, we just can't do it. But the work of Christ is amazing because it not only includes forgiveness for our failure, but also provision for our weakness. Uh, you remember the promise given through Ezekiel? Well, that promise given through Ezekiel comes true in what the Lord Jesus grants the New Testament believers in the sending of his Spirit. 
Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Uh, I will give you a new heart, uh, verse 27, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See how incredible the work of Christ, the perfect king, is. Not just provision for our failures, but provision for our weakness. It's truly amazing. You see that, how that should encourage us as Christian people in the present? Hey, it is a wonderful blessing to have been brought back into God's kingdom. We didn't deserve it. To now live under that good rule of God our King, of Christ our King. But also to have been given the blessing of the Spirit who indwells us and who guides us and strengthens us and challenges and rebukes us on the journey of life we now lead as New Testament believers. Friends, it is good news, it is great news to live under God's rule. It's great news for our lives individually, it's great news for our families, it's great news for our church, and it would be great news indeed if our society was willing for our society. So then as we bring it together and we think about what should we take away from this, the question I'd like to put for you to you is this. Are there ways in which you sometimes feel resentful at Christ's rule over you? Are there times when maybe you chaff a little bit about living under the rule of the good king? Maybe when you feel that there's just a little bit too much restriction for what you're comfortable with. The question I'd then put you to put it another, cut the cake another way is, can we sometimes slip into viewing Christ's rule over us in negative terms? Maybe we start to think of it in terms of restrictions. Restrictions on the expression of our sexuality. Restrictions on the way we use our money. Shaping the way that we have our attitude to our work or our relationships. Are we at danger in those times of forgetting that God's way is always the best way. Living under God's rule is always the better way. And to reject that is choosing the path back to darkness. Living under God's good rule doesn't always feel good, especially when Christ's rule confronts the idols of our hearts, the things which we really in our heart hold on to, thinking, this will really give me happiness in life. And yet Judges reminds us and it assures us Christ's rule over us is the best way. Self-determination, self-rule are, in the end, destructive. Maybe there are times when we have resisted the Spirit's prompting in our lives. Maybe there are times when we've felt the, scriptures brought, uh, the Spirit has brought Scriptures to mind, and we thought, yeah, I know, but... I still want to do what I want to do. We've all found that in different ways. And yet, what do we need to do? We need to say again, sorry, Lord. Sorry for resisting your good rule over me. Sorry, Spirit, for resisting your promptings in my life. We need to humble our hearts and submit afresh, saying your rule is the best way. And I want to submit my life again to live under your good rule. So, that's the first uh, conclusion we can draw. Uh, Judges gives us this fresh appreciation of, of the work that Christ has done. And it helps us and it shapes us to live now 
more joyfully and submissively under the good rule of Christ in the present. But finally, more briefly, Judges also gives us a fresh appreciation of the work that Christ is yet to do. There are times, are there not, when the weight of life in a world that has rejected God's rule bears down on us. Maybe we feel that when we see what is happening in Nigeria, in Syria, in Iraq. When we hear the atrocities that are happening abroad and locally in Parramatta. And we feel the darkness. And we feel the weight of living in a world which in many ways is unravelling and in many ways is suffering the consequences of rejecting the rule of its creator, King. And it's not just out there, is it? Because we also, in our lives, in different ways, experience the heaviness of living in a world which is fallen. We experience injustice and abuse at the hands of others. We may feel it when we stagger under the weight of sickness or sorrow. And what do we cry in our hearts as Christian people in those times? We cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. We want the Lord to come back. We want that day when he will finally resolve all evil and he will bring justice in perfection. When his rule, his righteous rule, will be restored over all the earth. When all opposition to that wonderful rule of the king will be removed forever. The prophets, of course, in the Old Testament spoke wistfully of the Messiah's glorious rule. They saw it as a beautiful thing. Isaiah 9 verse 7 is one example. Of the increase of his, that is the Messiah's government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. You see what it's talking about? Life and the new creation. When then God's people will live in God's place under God's rule. When justice and righteousness from that time on and forever will be enjoyed by everyone. It will be perfect society. How good it will be to live in a society where people perfectly live out God's law. Where all love God unswervingly with every ounce of and marrow of their being. Where all love each other perfectly. Where there is no selfishness and no evil. Think about how glorious it will be to live in a perfect society under the rule of our good King Lord Jesus. Unlike the Levite, then in the new creation, we'll be able to travel to faraway cities, enjoy the beauty of creation and of culture, but we'll be able to do it without peril. For people, all people, will be God's people, and all people, therefore, will be perfectly hospitable to those they don't know, to strangers. For we will be all united together as brothers and sisters in Christ's kingdom family. How amazing it will be to live in the new creation, perfectly under the rule of the perfect king. The darkness of judges refreshes our submission to the rule of Christ in the present and it invigorates our hope in the rule of Christ in the new creation. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of your law, that expression of your character, which if we lived it out perfectly would mean that we had perfect society. In many ways, of course, we have forfeited the joy of living in that sort of world. And we rightly live under your judgment as a humanity. And yet we thank you for your gracious response in sending your king, the Lord Jesus, the one who was the servant king who died for us, who provided an answer to all our failures through his atoning death on the cross, who provided for all our weakness of heart through sending of the Spirit, who helps us now on life's journey to the new creation. Help us to continue on that life journey. Help us to submit joyfully to the rule of Christ in our lives, even when sometimes maybe in our sinful hearts we chaff against that. Help us to remember that your ways are best and help us to have a hope that burns brighter, especially in the darkness when we experience the darkness of life now as we look forward to life and the new creation under the perfect rule of your perfect King. Amen.